Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, you are excused. There are going to be some teachers in the back there who are going to welcome you. And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Exodus. So if you will, turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. We're going to be looking at chapters, well, some of chapter 20, all the way through chapter 24. I promise you, I will not read all of it. This is one of those texts that that there's a lot of laws that if I read them, it would be like nap time for all of us. So I'm not going to do that. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Some people will bring you one. Exodus chapter 20. Now, this this week, uh, as is the custom, as I'm accustomed to do, I on Tuesday morning, I opened up the text that I'd be preaching on the the uh, future Sunday. So I opened up my Bible to Exodus chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. And as I was reading it, I saw headlines in my Bible. M- many of you have those. Um, they're not actually, uh, it's not Bible. It's actually an editor's note that kind of summarizes what the chapter is about. And so this week, as I was reading this section, it said on slavery, on restitution, and on social justice. Now, I'm a glutton for punishment, but there's some heat on those words these days, isn't there? And then the week kind of went on. And as many of you know, the week got even more heated in the news. On Friday, Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted of all charges for shooting three men, killing two of them. And then what happened last uh, on Friday night with protests was basically a national conversation that was going on, and you could summarize that national conversation with one word and one word alone. It's the word justice. Some were crying out that justice was served. Others were crying out that justice misfired. But that was the conversation, wasn't it? You didn't need to go on Facebook. I'm not on social media. But if you went on there, that was the conversation. It was a conversation about justice. Now, justice is complicated. I mean, just even the word, sometimes if you have a conversation about justice, you're just talking over each other because you have different definitions for a very simple word. Like justice is a complicated idea and word. But one of the reasons why justice is complicated is because justice in this world, it's not perfect. In the same week, just last week, I read this headline in the news. Two men convicted of, an, of the 1965 assassination of Malcolm X are exonerated during a court hearing Thursday after a half century behind bars. Can you imagine that? 50 years behind bars for something they didn't do. So even in the pursuit of justice, which is a good thing, but even in the pursuit of justice, we can fall below the ideal of justice, can't we? We desire justice, perfect justice, but so often what we get is just a sliver of it. 
This morning, our text is largely, not exclusively, but largely about justice. It's about God and his just laws given to his, in one sense, justified people. They are rescued. They are redeemed. They have been brought out of slavery from Egypt. And now, as they constitute as a people, God gives them laws to live by. And these laws that they're going to live by are laws meant to, to in one sense, live out the great name of God. So, so, so all throughout, we see God's name being exalted. God is the redeemer. God is powerful. God is the creator. God is the provider. He, he protects them in the wilderness. He provides for them in the wilderness. He, he, he fights for them and gets an army in the wilderness. And then we get to Exodus chapter 21. And God says, I'm also a just God. And as my, in one sense, justified people, my redeemed people, you need to live lives of justice, because my name will be exalted among the nations. Now, sometimes we hear things like uh, the, the church just needs to preach the gospel and stay away from issues of justice. But the Bible doesn't know those categories. We are called and we are grounded and, and the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ is the gospel. But we also need to preach the application of the gospel or the implications of the gospel, or the entailments of the gospel, which include many things, including what we're going to see this morning, which is the issue of justice. So the narrative flow of Exodus, and we've said this over and over again, I just want this to be clear, is that God's people are freed. So that's gospel. They are rescued. And then after being rescued, they give, get life-giving laws. It's always in that order. So as God's newly redeemed people, now they are to image the redeemer by living justly in the world. Now, up front, I've got three points. The first point, it's going to be the longest. So if you kind of like are taking like time and you're like, "Uh oh, this is going to be a long sermon. It, It won't be. The first point is going to be the longest because it's the longest section in here. And it's all about law after law after law. Okay. And I promise you, I will not go through all of these laws. Okay. You, you, I, I encourage you to read them all. You're going to have questions about them. You could talk to me. I might have answers to some of these. You could talk to your small group. Right? You could stump some people. You can have a conversation about it in your small group. That would be a wonderful thing to do. But again, we're going to talk in general. We're going to use some of these laws as illustrations of kind of the big idea of what God is doing as he gives these laws to his redeemed people. So here's the big idea, and it's behind me. God's people are rescued for justice. They are guided by a promise in order to feast with God. All right, that's my best attempt. Every week when you have these big sections, I'm trying to condense everything down into a a pithy sentence. That's my best attempt at doing so. So first, let's, let's look at God's people who are rescued for justice. So if you remember from last week, Moses is up on the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments. And then afterward, he goes down the mountain and he tells Everyone uh, who are at the bottom, all the people, he tells them what God had said to him when he was up on the mountain. 
And then Moses then goes back up the mountain. So this whole kind of narrative is him trekking up and down and up and down the mountain and meeting with God. And what you have, and you can just look at it, you're going to be helped if you just have your Bible open because we're going to be flipping around in about three chapters. Starting in uh, chapter 20, verse 22, all the way to chapter 23, verse 19, we have law after law after law after law after law. God speaks all of these laws. And then basically Moses is going to deliver. We're going to find out later that he's going to actually write down these laws. And he's going to deliver to his people and say, we got to do all these things. These are part of the covenant obligations of the Mosaic covenant. Now, these laws, I just want to make a few comments about these before we get into the particulars. These laws are not uh, disjointed from the Ten Commandments. So how these relate are, you have the Ten Commandments, which are like umbrella commandments. And then in chapters 20 through 23, you have case laws or applications of the Ten Commandments. So, so you can do this. I actually did this this week. You can print off all of the laws from chapter 20 to 23, and you can read them, and you can see, oh, this is uh, commandment 6. This is commandment 8. You can actually see just kind of a, a literal one-to-one correlation between the Ten Commandments and each of these case laws. And so what these are are case laws. They are sort of ways in which God is giving Uh, laws and examples and sort of hypothetical cases to God's people to say, okay, this is how you apply this commandment in order to live in this world. So let me give you some examples. So the eighth commandment says you shall not steal. But, But let's just say hypothetically that you built a bonfire with your small group. And let's just say hypothetically the bonfire got out of control and it burned the neighbor's crops. So you didn't technically steal their crops, but you destroyed their crops. So is that stealing? Is it not stealing? Well, you just have to read Exodus chapter 22, verse 6. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Or I'll give you one more. The sixth commandment. So the sixth commandment says, do not murder. But let's just say, hypothetically, that two men get in a fist fight. They're angry about something, and they get in a fist fight. And imagine one of the spouses of these two men runs out, and she happens to be pregnant, and she tries to break up the fight. And in the process of breaking up the fight, she gets hit and falls down. And in that process, she actually gives birth early to the baby, and the baby dies. Is that murder? Well, you have to read chapter 21, verses 22 to 25 to to get an answer to that question. So you see, all of these are case laws. They are ways in which we can apply the Ten Commandments to all of life, right? These are, in one sense, civil laws given to God's people about how they can live in a broken world. And that last phrase is important. Like, this is a post Genesis 3 world. This is a broken world. And so God meets his people where they're at and says, this is, this is how you're going to ha- get approximate justice. Not, not perfect justice, but approximate justice in the midst of this broken world. Now, once again, I'm not going to talk about all of these laws. But the big idea, the really big idea in these three sections is this, and I'm going to make some observations as we go along. 
And it's this, as we think about God's justice, God's justice needs to be framed and fueled by worship. So if you just, just, just look how this whole section is just even laid out. You have in verse 22 of chapter 20, all the way through 26, laws about altars. That's, that's laws about worship. And then you've got law after law after law. And then if you get to the end of chapter 23, verse 10 to verse 19, you have laws about the Sabbath and festivals. Also laws about worship. So you have laws about worship, and then you've got a bunch of other laws, and then you've got laws about worship. Worship brackets this entire section of case laws. And in many ways, that's exactly how the Ten Commandments are framed, aren't they, right? You have worship, do not... You, do not have other gods. You're to worship the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. You've got the first two commandments, which are all about worship, and those are supposed to be uh, that which you build out all the other commandments on. And so the, the big idea, if you just think about how these case laws are even organized, is simply this, that if you want to be just in this society, if you want to be something, someone who fights for justice and fight against injustice, Well, it's really clear that it starts with worship. It starts with worship. Or we could say it negatively. Idolatry leads to injustice, inevitably. All idolatry leads to, in one form or another, injustice. Now, everyone's talking about justice these days. But I think Christians, we need to frame even the conversation differently. We need to frame it around the lens of worship. Because downstream, whatever we worship, whether it's God or something else, whatever we worship downstream are going to have consequences. So let me give you some examples. If you worship money, and we're going to see this in this section, if you worship money, well, downstream, you might trample on the poor in order to get wealth. Or if you worship comfort, you might have a tendency to just push out the have-nots because you want more because you want to be more comfortable. Or if you worship power, control, well, you might have a tendency to try to hoard power and control because you love it so much. And so those who don't have power, you're not going to share power with. Or if you worship sex, you'll begin to maybe abuse others or use others or mistreat others because that's your God. You see, whatever we worship, whatever we have as an idol, downstream will produce idolatry. And that's what this section is all about. That as we worship God truly in the manner in which he calls us to worship, we will live just lives. But if we don't, if we worship other things, well, Injustice will reign. That's the major point here. Look down in chapter 23, verse 6. We read, You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in a lawsuit. So, so often, sinful humans, we have a sort of a tendency to, to be all about the truth when it's in our benefit, but to shade the truth when it's not in our benefit, right? And so here, God is very, very clear. 
that as it relates to lawsuits on the poor, right? The, the poor who can't do anything. They don't have a good lawyer. It would just be really, really easy to just get your way because they're poor. He, God is really, really clear. No, 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 no. My justice is different. It doesn't matter. You need to side with the truth. That's God's standard of justice. Now, that, that's easier said than done, right? It's, it's a great principle. It's a great ideal. I'm guessing very few people would say, yes, trample on the poor to get rich. No, no, no. That's, that's so un, unkind, right? We were taught from as little kids that that is not good behavior. And yet it, it's hard. Because what this text is getting at is that if we want to be just, justice starts with our hearts. And that's really hard, isn't it? That's just really hard. I mean, I mean some of the most, uh, some of the injustice that I see in, around, uh, just that I'm uh, in, in my kind of frame and in my life, actually happen in my house as I misfire justice all the time as a parent. We have these broader things, but many of the laws in this text actually have to relate to the family and how parents should interact with their kids. And so often, if you're anything like me, you realize that in all my worst days, I'm not just a bad parent, I'm an unjust parent. Because at the end of the day, justice flows from the heart. It's why the church father Augustine once wrote that you can love God and then do whatever you please, right? His point is that if you keep the first commandment, if you just love God, then just do whatever you want because you'll keep all the rest of the commandments. If we put God first in our life, if we worship him and he's first, well, then we're going to keep all of his commands. We're not going to murder. We're not going to steal because we're going to realize, oh, God's my provider. He's given me everything I need. I'm going to continue worship him in the good and the bad. So, so if you want to live justly in this world, if you want to be for justice, well, you've got to give yourself to the first law, which is the law of love, the law of loving God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. That's where justice begins. It starts with our hearts. Which means, and let me just point out the obvious. If justice really does start with the heart, meaning that all injustice is birthed out of our hearts. And because we have sinful hearts, let me just point out the obvious. It means that we cannot get rid of injustice this side of heaven. It's going to be with us. That's just part of what it means to be in a broken world. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't fight against it. It doesn't mean that we don't speak truth to injustice, but it does mean that until the human heart is pure until the human heart fully worships Jesus. And that only comes in the world to come. Well, injustice is going to be with us. But with that said, in a general sense, I think we can make a couple observations as to what we can learn from God's laws that he gives in these three chapters. I'm going to say it in one sentence, but there's kind of two kind of major observations. And first is this, that God's law, in a general sense, when you kind of take all of them together, God's laws that we see here, it's all about protecting the vulnerable and the weak. And then second, there's a proportionality to God's justice. So most of chapter 21, if you go there, It's all about slavery. 
Now, slavery in the Bible is different than the slavery that we're, we kind of know from our American history, right? Uh, American history as it relates to slavery was chattel slavery. That is taking a man and, and as property because of their ethnicity and owning them and the owner can do what they want when they want to do it. It was that sort of um, relationship and there was no end in that sense. And that's not exactly what's going on. That sort of um, slavery is actually forbidden. And we see that in verse uh, 16 of chapter 21. Go, Go there. I just want to point this out. We read simply this, that whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Now, I I think the NIV is even better. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Right? So, so, So basically, if you steal a man or a woman, that carries with it the death penalty. So, so if that's the case, if kind of our view of, of, of slavery in our kind of uh, American Western culture isn't exactly what's going on here, then what is going on here? If, if you can't be abducted and then sold into slavery, what is it that the Bible is talking about in mostly chapter 21? Well, in, in some sense, you could think of it like um, indentured servitude. That, that's more of the idea that's going on here. So, so, so remember, there is no welfare state you know, in 1450 BC. There is no way to care for the poor in that sense. There's no governmental programs of sorts. And so this was one way that someone who maybe was in debt, who had a couple bad years um, on their, uh, with crops, who, who, who was just in a financial strait, this was one way they could get out of that strait. They could, they could create a contract with someone else and become their servant. Right? The word's slave, but some translators actually say servant. But in all of it, there was actually, um, there, in this contract, it was not forever. In Deuteronomy 15, there's actually parameters, and it says after the seventh year, the person goes free, the debt is cleared. So, so maybe a better idea is, um, or a better analogy is that this is like the military, all right? It, I, I'm not in the military, but, but go with me for a second. If you are, correct me if I'm wrong in this, okay? But here's my analogy. So in some sense, the military, you sign a contract, and there's uh, years. You sign a contract for, let's say, four years to be in the military. And when you sign this contract, they get to tell you where to go. You, get, you have not that much say in it, right? They own you in a sense. They tell you where to go, what to do for those four years. And so in that sense, it is like this is. And I I would also add that sometimes, for some people, even joining the military and going under this contractual obligation with the military is a way to get out of poverty. So that's sort of what's going on here. And so what we see in chapter 21 is that even in the midst of this world of slavery, and it was all over the place, we saw it in Egypt Even in the midst of this, God puts parameters around it to protect the vulnerable, to even protect the vulnerable who are in the service of others, who've created this contract to get out of poverty. Even in that context, there is a safety net for them. 
And so if you go through all of these, and if you just flip, you could almost at will read one. The general idea is that God is providing laws in order to protect vulnerable people, especially women. Let me just give you an example. Go to chapter 22, verse 16. It says, if a man seduces a virgin, and there maybe your uh, translation has like an asterisk by it, which is like a girl of marriageable age, okay? So let's say a man seduces a, a woman of marriageable age who is not betrothed, who's not married, and he lies with her. What happens? He shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for the for virgins. So, so often we think of sex as merely a private matter. But here, and in the Bible, sex isn't a private matter alone. It's a matter of justice. And just as a side, our, actually, our legal system believes that as well, right? A man cannot have a child with another woman and then just peace out without legal and financial obligations, right? Our legal system even says that, that, that sex is a, a, an issue of justice, And here, that's what we see, that there are protections for women who have been seduced by a man. And and don't you sort of love it? It says, okay, the man has to marry her and pay the bride price, which was a cultural thing. Or if the father says, "Uh, no, you're a creep, and I'm not going to let you marry him, which this guy probably is a creep. It says the father can say, just give me the money and stay away from my daughter. It protects her, even there. God's justice is largely in this section about protecting the vulnerable in society. And he does so also by giving proportional laws. That's the second observation I want to make. So God's justice is not identical retribution. That's what Jesus was saying where Steve read it uh, earlier, right? An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's identical retribution. That's not all God's justice is. Actually, that's kind of an outlier, God's justice is actually much more complicated than that. It's proportional in nature. God's justice is sophisticated. It's not arbitrary. It's not like playground justice, right? Playground justice is you hit me, I hit you. God's justice is more complicated. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, notice it's not identical, right? It doesn't say if you stole a sheep, get one sheep back. It says you get five back or five oxen back or four sheep. But then uh, notice something. Did, did you notice that there's, there's a math problem? So if you steal an oxen, you get five back. If you steal a sheep, you get four back. Now, does God hate sheep and love oxen or something? Like, what, is it just like a hot oxen market these days? Like, what's going on? Why, why would God do this? Why isn't it equal? Well, just think about it. An ox is a working animal, right? You don't just use an ox for meat. You use an ox to to till, to plow. And so if you took an ox, it's not just taking a, a pet or it's not even just taking a sheep where you have wool. No, no, you're taking your livelihood away, right? Because now you can't plant crops maybe next year. So it's a more serious crime than just taking a sheep. That's God's point. God is proportional. He is, he is setting out proportions for different injustices and saying, you know, a sheep is not the same as an ox. That's what good 
systems do. Good law systems take motivations into account, and they say that not everything is equal, right? And that's what God does as it relates to his justice. It's proportional, not identical. God's justice is fair. He takes motivations into account. He takes circumstances into account. It's not arbitrary. And so God's people are called to display that sort of character of God as they interact with each other. So God rescues his people. He he brings them out and they are to worship him. That's fundamentally who they are. They are a worshiping community. But as they worship God, as they order that right, they're going to begin to live in a just way. They're not going to be wooed by other idols. That's why when we even get to the end of chapter 3, he says, when you go into the land, be so careful not to worship the other gods, you guys. He goes, be careful because when you do, you'll begin to act like them. And that's his point here. If you worship me, you'll begin to act like me. And God is a just God. And these laws are an extension of his justice. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think in one sense, what what this means is that we too are called to live out as God's justified people. We're not justified by the law. But as God's justified people in Christ, we should live just with justice in our minds. We should be concerned about the vulnerable in our society, about the weak in our society. Now, if you're anything like me, that seems overwhelming, right? Exhausting. Like there, there are days when I just want to go to bed at like eight and just call it a day. I'm just exhausted, let alone fighting for and changing the world. Like that just seems too big. Well, I think one thing that we can do is just be more aware of injustices, to, to, to ask questions, to sit down with people, and to maybe even just pray in your neighborhood and in our community, who are the vulnerable? Who are the weak? Who, who should we reach out to? Right? Well, that's the first point. It's the longest point. I'm going to speed up from now. We are God's rescued people. That's the church. But that's not all we should do. We also need to be guided by a promise. So look at chapter 23, starting in verse 20. I'm going to read the end of chapter 23. Behold, see how this breaks up? This whole section is broken up. Behold, I I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel, rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you are careful to obey his voice and do all that I say to them, then, you, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the, uh, to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will blot them out. And you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, 
and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Then I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before, uh, out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So we have this whole section of case laws that are interrupted, verse 20, by this whole idea of behold. Here comes a new section. And basically, God's really, really clear from verse 20 to verse uh, 33. And the clarity is that God's people are going to the land. God's given it to them. They've got it. And God is going to give them everything they need in order to succeed. Look down at verse 28. It says that he's going to give, send hornets before them. Well, if you go to Joshua 24, right before they take possession of the land, hornets are sent. God delivers on his promise. He's going to bring them into the land. He's provided everything they need. Not only hornets, he gives them an angel to guide them. Did you guys see that in verse 20? Verse 20, he's going to give them this amazing promise of this angel who will guide them, who will comfort them, who will provide for them, who will get them to the land. And this land is described with blessings like you will never They're just amazing blessings. You see it, verse 25? No need, no want. This is Eden. And they're going to get there. That is the blessing that is dangled before them. So you could think of it this way. In verses 20 through 23, that's like the stick. And now they have a new incentive like a carrot. And the incentive is the blessing of the promised land. And they're going there and they're going to get there. Because God's given them everything they need to guide them there. Well, well, we're not promised a land. We, in the church, as new covenant believers, we're not promised a land or real estate. We're promised something better. We're promised in the world to come, no tears, no fears. We're promised that God is going to right every wrong. We're promised a world without hornets to sting us. And we too live by way of a promise. You know, here it says as they're going, God's saying our fundamental relationship isn't you follow laws and then I will bless you. It's no, I've blessed you. Now as the blessed people, now live a blessed life. Well, that's our experience too, right? He redeems us and says, now as the redeemed, you are to live good lives. But he doesn't just leave us to our own devices. 
Right? M- Moses goes up on a mountain and he gets this amazing promise. And right before Jesus is ascended into heaven, Jesus goes up on a mountain too. And he tells the church, he tells his disciples that he's going to give them a promise to guide them, to comfort them, to provide for them all the way until they reach the ultimate promised land, heavenly Zion. And it's far greater than an angel, far more powerful than hornets. He promises the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? To guide his people, to preserve his people, to protect his people. My guess is, as Moses is explaining all the laws, all that they are to do, all of the obligations of the Mosaic Covenant, I'm guessing they are exhausted. How are they going to do so? So even here, Moses is reminding the people, they need a promise. They need a helper. And they had one in the form of an angel in the Old Covenant. And they have one in the New Covenant. They have the whole, we have the Holy Spirit. So, so if you're weary, if you're tired, God has given you everything you need to be successful, to pilgrim home. So don't give up. If you keep failing God's law, you keep failing to live up to his standard, well, that's the blessing of the new covenant as well. You can repent and start all over. Your relationship is fundamentally based on promise and fulfillment. Now that would be enough, right? I could close here and that really would be enough. But there is one more movement that we see. And so not only are God's people rescued so that they can live just lives to display God's justice, and not only are they guided by a promise, but what we see, they're guided by a promise so that God can sit down and have a Thanksgiving Day meal with his people. Look at it. Chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nabab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with us, with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord have spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the law. He rose early in the morning and built an altar in the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in a basin and half the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the, bread of the, coven- or the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, once again, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the, the blood and threw it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nabab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So we've got verse 1 and 2 of chapter 24. God calls 
Moses back up to the mountain, and he's got some priests. Um, whoa, whoa, what, what will, who will become priests? This is a foreshadowing of the priestly line. And so he says, okay, M- M- Moses, you can come close. Everyone else, a little bit farther away. That's God's holiness. And then eventually they come back down the mountain. And here we have the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant being ratified. It's, it's secured. So verse 5, Moses builds an altar and he makes a sacrifice. And did you notice he sprinkles it on two things? He sprinkles it on the altar and then he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. Now that's gross. And it's purposely gross. And basically what he's saying is God's, so the, the, the people, God's people, Israel and God, secured by blood, are one people. They're a family. That's what this covenant is represented. There, there is a new relationship between God and his people. And the other purpose of blood that he puts on the altar, on the people, is to show just the seriousness of this. It's as if it's saying, if you break the covenant, what's going to happen to you is the same thing that happened to the animal. Well, when this happens, when the covenant is ratified, it begins, well, Moses and the men go once again up. And then we read this, verse 10. They saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the heavenly, um, like the heaven for clearness. That's a weird phrase, but it shows up a couple other times in the Bible. We see this in Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4. This is a description of the throne room of God. Heaven at this moment on Sinai, is colliding with earth. There's an overlap of heaven and earth. And God meets with his people. And one of the shockers is verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Now, that's a a phrase that basically means, and God did not kill them. Instead, what happened? Thanksgiving. They beheld God and they ate and drank. You see, the purpose of the covenant and its laws always was purposed in communion with God. That is the purpose even of the old covenant. It was that God's people would commune with God. That's what it means. You you don't have fellowship with strangers, right? You don't just invite a random stranger into your home for Thanksgiving, you, you have it with family or people you've invited. And so meals in the Old Testament, those were fellowship meals. It meant that there was a new intimacy, a communion. And God sits down with men on a mountain and eats and drinks. I mean, can you just imagine that? I'm convinced this, this is what our world wants. I'm convinced that our world, it doesn't even matter if you're a Christian. I think all people at some level want to commune with God. They want to know God. They, they want to be known by God. They want to have some sort of intimacy with God. But they're fearful that they can't have it. And in some ways, it's true. Our sin, our brokenness, our weaknesses, our failures mean 
that we can't fellowship with God in that unfettered way, in that strict one-to-one correlation. We can't be in God's presence. But we all want it. So here we have in this section, we have blood and feasting together. It comes up again in the Bible. In the New Testament, the language of blood and feasting comes together again when Jesus sat down with his disciples. And he said, this is the cup, not of the old covenant, but of a new covenant in blood. His blood. You see, the old covenant was ratified by blood, by the blood of an animal. But the new covenant was ratified and secured, not by the blood of an animal, but by the blood of God's own son. That's why it's so secure. Because it wasn't based on an animal. Let alone, the old covenant was, the obligation was that the people would obey. You you saw that theme over and over again. You need to obey all that I've said. And they say, yep, we're going to do it. And you're just, I mean, in eight chapters, they break it. Okay? The new covenant, it's not based on us to obey. It was based on Christ who obeyed it fully. Therefore, when we repent and believe, when we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice for sins, it's not on us to fulfill the new covenant. It's already been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That is why it's so much better than the old covenant. Because it's secure in Christ. But notice also what, when Jesus spoke those words. He spoke those words at a feast. It was at the Last Supper, wasn't it? The Last Supper, Jesus is with his disciples and he's eating and drinking. And he's basically saying, Moses and a select few got to commune with God, feast with God on the mountain. But it was only a few. It was only partial. But now, because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, All who put their trust and faith in Jesus can commune with God through that sacrifice. That's why it's so amazing. There's there's a lot of talk about justice these days, aren't there? A lot of talk about it. And hear me, we, we must and ought to fight for justice. Sometimes it's just hard to know what is just and what isn't just. But let me just point out in closing that twice there's a refrain like a musical instrument in these four chapters. Moses gives clarification as to why we ought to live justly in the world. Chapter 22, verse 21, we read, You shall not wrong a sojourner, an outsider, or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Or chapter 23, verse 9. It's very, very similar. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. That's why we do justice. That's why we live just lives. The greatest injustice that has ever happened came on Christ Jesus because of us. And so we live justly. We love our neighbors Because we've been justified. The point is that they're not to look like Egypt. They're to look like God as they relate to one another. And so ought we. 
as we care for one another, as we walk with one another, as we share each other's burdens, and as we laugh with one another, as we financially support each other, as we commit to each other, we are to display God. And as we together pray for our communities and love our neighbors, and in in the small ways God asks us to step out in faith and, and live just lives, we do all of that because we should know We are just like Israel. We were once not a people, but now we are. We were once sojourners, but now we're not. As God's freed people, as God's justified people, we are called to live just lives. That that, that is who we are. We are rescued for good works, Ephesians tells us. We are rescued for justice. Lord, we, um, we, we know we fail so often the standard of justice. We fail so often to to live up to our calling. We thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. And we thank you that we are justified not by the things we do. We are justified in Christ. And so we can sing this last song, a song all about feasting in your presence. A, A feast that we have in part now, but we will have in full in the world to come, Lord. We Look forward to that reality, Lord. And so we sing about communion with you, about intimacy with you, about deepening our relationship with you. We long for that, Lord. So we pray as a church that this would be a season where we go deeper with your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.